Good evening, everyone. My name is Father Andre Dargis. I'm a member of the, this parish's pastoral team, and it is my pleasure and honor to welcome you to St. Patrick's Catholic Community. And my name is Dr. John Konachek. I'm a member of this wonderful parish, and I'm very happy to share with you this evening this wonderful document that we have been blessed to share and to grow and to learn from by our fantastic newly Americanized Pope, right? <laughs> We're going to open praying together the hymn of St. Francis, which you will see on all the screens in just a moment. So I'd like you all to pray together aloud. Praise, Praise be you, to you, my Lord, Lord with, with all, all your creatures, creatures especially, especially Sir, Sir Brother Son, who, who is the day and through whom you give us light. And he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor and bears a likeness of you, Most High. Praise be you, my Lord, through Sister Moon and the stars. In heaven you formed them clear and precious and beautiful. Praise be you, my Lord, through Brother Wind and through the air, cloudy and serene, and every kind of weather through whom you give sustenance to your creatures. Praise be you, my Lord, through Sister Water, who is very useful and humble and precious and chaste. Praise be you, my Lord, through Brother Fire, through whom you light the night. And he is beautiful and playful and robust and strong. I'm assuming that most, if not all of you, have read the encyclical. And even if you've only read a part of it, perhaps you read that, that part of it, because this hymn of St. Francis is found in the encyclical. So our format this evening is I'm going to speak about the theological foundations of the encyclical, and then Dr. Konachek is going to speak about the spiritual foundations of the encyclical. It is our expectation that we'll conclude our remarks around quarter of eight, ten minutes of eight, We'd like to leave time for questions and answers. We are not going to be offering a summary of the encyclical. You will always have the opportunity to read it. It's available in English. Take the time to read it, please. Nor are we going to deal with the sometimes contentious issues involved in the encyclical because neither of us is a scientist. However, we do hope to have questions and provide you with some answers regarding the theological and spiritual foundations of the encyclical. It is our intention to conclude this presentation at 8.30 this evening. Concluding, we'll pray together the prayer for the earth that Pope Francis composed and is at the conclusion of the encyclical. Laudato si, be praised. Pope Francis situates his letter in the tradition of recent popes who also wrote about the threats to humankind and to life on the earth. John XXIII, Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict XVI. Francis is therefore not the first to articulate these concerns, but were we paying attention before now? Francis reveals in the encyclical that his concerns are shared by many national Catholic Episcopal conferences, South Africa, the Philippines, Bolivia, Germany, Argentina, the United States of America, Canada, Japan, Brazil, Dominican Republic, Paraguay, New Zealand, Portugal, Mexico, and Australia. 
When some have asked, why is he talking about this? He's saying, everybody else has been speaking about it. Were you not listening? Give me a chance now to add to what they've been saying. Francis' encyclical displays that the roots of his teaching are to be found in the Bible and in the Vatican II document, The Church in the Modern World. He is especially pleased at the beginning of the encyclical to point out that ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, who holds the primacy of honor among all orthodox prelates, shares his fears and his hopes. Likewise, Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury and primate of the worldwide Anglican Communion, has voiced his unequivocal support for the encyclical and its analyses and proposed remedies. Also, Francis is applauded by more than 300 evangelical pastors who believe that climate change is the greatest moral challenge of our time. The encyclical has been publicly endorsed by the Dalai Lama, the spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism. American Jewish scholars have underlined with obvious approval that Francis stresses that the theology of protecting the earth and its many life forms is rooted in the Hebrew scriptures, beginning, as we will see, with the book of Genesis. The encyclical invites the whole human family to come together for a conversation, a new dialogue, an honest debate about how we are shaping the future of our planet, how to seek a sustainable and integral development of the world's resources, how to resolve the tragic effects of environmental degradation on the lives of the world's poorest. While drawing on the results of the best scientific research available today, he writes that in paragraph 15, he also sets out to consider some principles drawn from Judeo-Christian tradition. Very importantly, he urges each of us as individuals to undertake personal initiatives which address the challenges of our time and the context of our lifestyles as well as of our homes. We begin with the book of Genesis, chapter 2. There are two accounts of creation in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 2 is composed hundreds of years before chapter 1. Don't let it surprise you, the book of Genesis came together over many centuries. And so the older account of creation, the first one, is that which we find in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, all the way to the end of the chapter. It begins just with this way, and I'll just quote the first couple of verses so it'll come to mind for you. At the time when Yahweh God made earth and heaven, there was as yet no wild bush on the earth, nor had any wild plant yet sprung up, for Yahweh God had not sent rain on the earth, nor was there any man to till the soil. People to till the soil and care for the earth are essential to the life of the planet as well as is water. Man was created by God from the earth, a combination of soil and water. That's what Genesis 2 says. As water comes up from the earth, God literally gets on God's hands and knees and forms clay, and with his hands he forms this first being into which he will blow the divine breath, his own breath, into the nostrils of the clay figure, and it becomes a living human being. Man owes his origin to God. He also owes his life to the divine breath blown by the Creator into the man's nostrils. All vegetation on the earth is also created by God. That vegetation is entrusted by the Creator to man that he may, quote, cultivate and take care of it. Cultivate and take care of it. 
Man is a steward of creation, not its owner. Man is accountable to God for his stewardship of creation. Initially, people were vegetarians, even after the creation of animals. People are not given permission to kill and eat animals until after the great flood, until you get to about chapter 9 of the book of Genesis. God recognizes that the man God has created is lonely and dysfunctional. He needs a helper who will also complete him. God creates animals for that purpose. God creates the animals from the same soil from which God created the man. The animals also live from the divine breath. You can find this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 17. People and animals are interrelated and interdependent. The man named the animals, gave them their identity, and thus accepted responsibility for them. Animals provide valuable services to man, heavy work on the farm, milk. Let's turn now to chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, the second account of creation, which begins this way, In the beginning God created heaven and earth, and God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on earth, bearing fruit with their seed inside, each corresponding to its own species, and so it was. Obviously, the second account of creation proceeds very differently than chapter 2. God is no longer a hands-on creator who molds creatures from earth and clay. God now speaks God's creation as would an almighty sovereign whose word is law. Note, however, that the earth is the source of all vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees, as well as of every kind of living creatures, cattle, creeping things, and wild animals. The same as in Genesis chapter 2, where God creates everything from the earth. God fills the seas with fish and the skies with birds. In Genesis chapter 1, the creation of human beings comes last. But as the most important of God's creatures, humans are alone created in the image and the likeness of God. That permits them to be masters of all God's other creatures, to have a responsibility for creation and an accountability to God who is the origin, the creator of all. In this account, men and women are created simultaneously and receive the same blessing from God. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Men and women in Genesis chapter 1 are equal in God's sight. They also complete each other. Note that people are to eat in Genesis 1 only seed-bearing plants and fruit. Blood must never be shed. Human and animal life is sacred. Even animals may not kill to eat. The foliage of the plants is their food. Chapter 3 of the book of Genesis and its particular lesson. You recall that in chapter 3, the woman is tempted by the serpent who promises her that if she eats of the tree of the forbidden fruit, she will be like God, knowing all things, knowing good and evil. And so she eats of the fruit of the tree and offers the fruit to her husband who's with her. He eats of that fruit and then all hell literally breaks loose. God will say to the man, because you ate from the fruit of which I had forbidden you to eat, 
A curse be the soil because of you. The good order and harmony evidenced in chapters 1 and 2 are terminated in chapter 3. Due to the outrageous ambition, you'll be like the gods knowing all things and the thankless disobedience of the man and the woman. The eating of the forbidden fruit immediately causes discord between man and woman. They are ashamed of their nudity. They hide from God, and they blame others for their transgression. Sin has wounded the goodness and the holiness of creation. Man and woman are punished, but so is the earth. The text says, Accursed be the soil because of you. The earth and all its creatures suffer when humans turn their back on their responsibilities and reject accountability to the Creator. From now on, in Genesis 3, man, the tiller of the soil, will have to struggle with the earth to put food on his table. Ultimately, people will die and return to the earth from which they were created. In our time, as outlined in the encyclical, the excessive exploitation of the earth's resources, the pollution of its waters, and the poisoning of its atmosphere, all crimes which didn't have to be, have backfired on humanity, severely complicating our existence and even threatening our future. However, we have the means to cease doing harm to our common home and to move towards restoring a more healthful balance. Do we have the will to do it. Genesis chapter 4 begins, the man had intercourse with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. When humans turn their backs on the responsibilities entrusted to them by the Creator and refuse accountability for their actions, disharmony only increases. In chapter 3, the man blamed the woman for his sin and the woman blamed the serpent. In chapter 4, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, whose name is Cain, attempts to cheat God of what is owed to the Creator. He brings as a worship offering only some of the produce of the soil, while his younger brother, Abel, offers God, quote, the firstborn of his flock, his most valuable lambs or goats. Cain resents that God is more pleased with Abel's offering than with his. God counsels Cain on improving things, but Cain decides to eliminate the competition. He murders his brother in cold blood. When God questions Cain about Abel's whereabouts, Cain lies to God. But God knows the truth and confronts Cain's lie. Quote, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The earth wears the scars of human violence then and now. Human conflict wounds creation. We get to chapter 6, which is the beginning of the great flood account and the personage of Noah. Chapter 6, verse 5 reads, Yahweh God saw that human wickedness was great on earth and that human hearts contrived nothing but wicked schemes all day long. Verse 6, Yahweh regretted having made human beings on earth. Yahweh regretted having made human beings. And Yahweh said, I shall rid the surface of the earth of the human beings whom I created. 
human and animal, the creeping things and the birds of heaven, for I regret having made them. For my part, God says, I'm going to send the flood, the waters on earth, to destroy all living things, having the breath of life under heaven. Everything on earth is to perish. Following Cain's shedding of Abel's blood, human cruelty, and the spirit of vengeance, and if you read the last part of chapter 4, you'll see exactly what I mean, chapter 4 of Genesis, they lead to God becoming thoroughly disgusted with humanity. As a result, God decides to destroy all humankind. But because from their creation, people and animals have been related to each other in origin and in cooperation, animals will have to be destroyed as well. The violence of war harms not only humans, but the whole of creation as well. However, when God recognizes one just man, Noah, God's justice cannot permit that Noah be destroyed in the cataclysm to come. Noah will be saved, and also his wife with him, since together they are one, and their three sons and their sons' wives, one family. Because of one just man, seven other people will be saved, an ever-timely reminder of the power of even one person to turn things around. God's decision, in fairness, to save one human family leads God to also save all the families of animal species and all the species of plant life. Noah is instructed to bring aboard the ark not only pairs of all animal species, but all kinds of eatables as food for both humans and animals. Creation is one. All creatures, including vegetation, are locked into a single biosphere. In chapter 9, with the floodwaters subsided, Noah, his family, and all the occupants of the ark come out onto dry land in the expectation of a renewed beginning. Stressing the importance of the relationship between humans and animals, God, quote, establishes a covenant with Noah, with his family, and with every living creature that was in the ark with Noah, with every living thing on earth. And God says, never will I be destroying the earth and its creatures again through a great flood. Now I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 41 of the book of Genesis to an entirely different perspective on things. Because clearly in the current context, Pope Francis is asking us to make some changes in our lifestyle, to stop wasting, and to better manage the resources of the earth so that all may have what they need and deserve and that the most vulnerable may not go without what they need for life. And so in chapter 41, we are part of this story about Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob and his favorite wife, Rachel. Joseph has a gift for interpreting dreams. His brothers despised the favoritism that Jacob showed to Joseph and sought to eliminate him. In fact, they sold him off as a slave to traders traveling to Egypt. In Egypt, uh, Joseph found himself in prison. If you'd like to read the story, you can read it in the Bible. It's um, something we don't usually talk about in the presence of younger people. Cassius here in the first row. And in jail, Joseph has an opportunity to interpret the dreams of two of his fellow prisoners. That skill of his comes to the attention of Pharaoh, who has had some dreams which puzzle him terribly. And Pharaoh asks Joseph to interpret his dreams. 
And the dreams involve seven very fat cows coming out of the Nile, followed by seven very skinny cows. And Pharaoh says, what does it mean? And Joseph said, the seven fat cows means seven years of plenty, where the crops and the harvest will be wonderful throughout Egypt. But the seven skinny cows are seven years of famine and drought. And Pharaoh said, what should I do? And Joseph said, you have to tax the land, and so put aside for the future some of what the land is producing now, so that come the years of drought and famine, we'll be able to provide to the people what they need. During the seven years of plenty, the soil yielded generously. Joseph collected all the food of the seven years while there was an abundance in Egypt and stored the food in the towns, placing in each the food from the surrounding countryside. The seven years of famine set in. There was famine in every country, but throughout Egypt there was food. There was famine all over the world. Then Joseph opened all the granaries and rationed out grade to the Egyptians as the famine grew even worse in Egypt. People came to Egypt from all over the world to get supplies from Joseph, for the famine had grown severe throughout the world. Now the perspective of the author of chapter 41 is that we have a responsibility to the whole world. Joseph could have said, you know, the grain we're collecting is just for Egyptians or just for Egyptians in the area where we've had the surplus harvest. But he understands that the gifts of the earth, the, God, the gifts that God gives us from the earth are for everyone. And Pharaoh lets him do this. Take from the time of abundance, put aside for the future, so that in times of less, there'll be enough. In the New Testament, the lessons of creation are found primarily in the first chapter of the Gospel according to John. Through God's word, Jesus, through God's word, who is Jesus, all things came into being. Not one thing came into being except through him, writes St. John. What has come into being in him was life. All living things share a common origin. John writes of the darkness found in humankind, but affirms the darkness could not overpower the light, life itself. In Jesus, all creation has its best chance of fulfilling the Creator's purposes. If Christ's disciples follow his path, we'll love one another as he taught and as he did. Luke's gospel celebrates sparrows, ravens, flowers, and adds, not one is forgotten in God's sight. Luke chapter 12. Like Jesus, Pope Francis' primary concern is for the poor, the marginalized, the most vulnerable of humankind. In our pursuit of material goods, we must never jeopardize the health and the life of our fellow humans. This lesson is brought home in many passages of the New Testament, among which I cite two texts from Luke's Gospel from chapter 12 and chapter 16. Then Jesus told, chapter 12, verse 16, Jesus told them a parable. There was once a rich man who, having had a good harvest from his land, thought to himself, what am I to do? I have not enough room to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods in them. And I will say to my soul, my soul, you have plenty of good things laid by for many years to come. Take things easy. Eat, drink, and have a good time. Chapter 12, verse 18. But God said to the man, you fool. This very night, the demand will be made for your soul, and this horde of yours, whose will it be then? 
So it is with someone stores up treasure for himself instead of becoming rich in the sight of God. Set your hearts on God's kingdom and these other things will be given you as well. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. Chapter 16, verse 19 and following. There was a rich man who used to dress in purple and fine linen and feast magnificently every day. At his gate there used to lie a poor man called Lazarus who was covered with sores, who longed to fill himself with what fell from the rich man's table. Even dogs came and licked his sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels into Abraham's embrace. The rich man also died, but he was buried. In his torment in Hades, the rich man looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus in his embrace. So he cried out, Father Abraham, pity me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. Abraham said, My son, remember that during your life you had your fill of good things, just as Lazarus had his fill of bad. Now he is being comforted here while you are in agony. Pope Francis is called to eliminate waste so there can be more of the earth's resources to feed and sustain the world's peoples. We find the support for Pope Francis' call in each gospel's relating of the multiplication of loaves and fishes in feeding huge crowds. And this is one of the episodes which is found in all four gospels, not very common. It's in Mark 6, Matthew 14, Luke 9, and John 6. Jesus insists, after everyone has been fed, that the apostles collect all that remains. Quote, nothing is to be wasted. However, as Pope Francis points out, our generations, our cultures waste a great deal. We waste enormous amounts of food. We waste a great deal of water. Waste seems to be part of how we live in our culture. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 16 writes, the crime of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride, gluttony, Excessive eating, complacency, such were hers and her daughter's crimes. Dr. Konacek. Thank you, Father Andre. <laughs> We're a little different, he and I. When I read through this document, it reminds me very much of a, of a great spiritual director. I had one such person, Sister Connie Champagne. When I was living in New Orleans and teaching at Loyola University, I needed a good spiritual director because I was teaching theology. And somebody said, oh, there's a sister up at the Jesuit Spirituality Center who would be good for you. And boy, what a ride. I was not prepared for somebody who would challenge me so much, support me so much, intrigue me so much by the things that she offered me, and yet showed me how much God was present in my life all along. It wasn't very much something new. But I grew spiritually by leaps and bounds those few years with her because of the way she guided and because she knew me. And that's what I find with Pope Francis in this encyclical. When you read it, don't you kind of want to hide sometimes? Like, oh, he's talking about me. 
And yet, there are many ways in which it's not so new. This spirituality that he offers us about God found in creation, God relating to humanity within creation. We've been doing it for years, thousands of years. Here's an example. Sacramentary. See if you know this one. See if you know how to respond. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread you offer, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness... We have received the wine we offer you, fruit of the vine and work of human hands. It will become our spiritual drink. Blessed be God forever. Do you experience God of and in creation? And did you ever notice this stained glass up here? It's kind of different, isn't it? What do you see? Tell me. A tree, water, plants, sky, mountains, creation. And who is at the center of that? Jesus, the crucified Jesus who will be raised up. We'll come back to that. When we read this encyclical, we should be startled by some of the things that he says. It's, it's not heavy content, new material, but we instead see a, a long tradition of Christian spirituality, of the way that God relates to us, of the way that God speaks to us, of our relationship with God, of our relationship in faith with one another. And as a university teacher, I was also shocked that this is not Pope Francis's material alone. Uh-huh. He has copied from other people. Do you recognize these folks? John the 23rd, Paul the 6th. John Paul II, Benedict, all have contributed to this document that Pope Francis has given us. And there have been others who contributed to this over the centuries. Even the very first statement, the title is from St. Francis of Assisi. And St. Francis lived in the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, and he revealed a deep love for creation and for creatures. But what's interesting to me is, like Pope Francis, his spirituality was not always well-received. It didn't always fit very well in the predominant thinking of the time. It didn't always 
speak with great reception to those who had different ways of thinking about creation, spirituality, and theology. There was a predominant thinking at the time called Neoplatonism. Bank on that one. And what the Neoplatonists did at the time is they kind of set the stage for the way that theology happened at the time and the correct way to understand creation. And I'm not saying that it's bad, I'm just saying it was the way that people were thinking. So the way to God, according to Neoplatonism, was that you needed to move away from and above nature because the natural world was inferior and bad. There was the inferior natural world, and that was below, and then there was the higher spiritual world, and that's where you wanted to go to find God. But that didn't work for Francis. Uh, St. Francis came to realize that creation is good because it flows from a good God. He placed a positive emphasis on the humanity of Christ, the dignity of the human person, and of creation as family. Creation is divine gift. The Franciscan view of creation is a divine created relationship that is unified in love. The integral relationship between creation and divine goodness bestows positive value to every aspect of creation. Nothing is left out, but it also creates unique dignity to every human person. So for Francis to follow, and the Franciscan theologians that followed him, to follow Christ, therefore, is to seek union in love and to be related to every creature as brother and sister. And we see examples of Franciscan spirituality woven throughout this document. Number 76, creation can only be understood as gift. That's Franciscan theology. That's Franciscan spirituality. Number 119, our relationship with the environment can never be isolated from our relationship with others and with God. It's all one. There's a unity there. And number 92, everything is related. And we human beings are united as brothers and sisters on a wonderful pilgrimage, woven together by the love God has for each of his creatures and which also unites us in fond affection with brother sun, sister moon, brother river, and mother earth. And that is directly out of Francis's Canticle of the Creatures. So Pope Francis is also a Jesuit. And who better than to represent the Jesuits than St. Ignatius? So Pope Francis entered the Jesuits in March of 1958. And that was in Buenos Aires. And Jesuits in the novitiate, they always make what's called the spiritual exercises or the 30-day retreat. And St. Ignatius had a particular fondness 
of understanding creation. The spiritual exercises are done as a way of deepening one's relationship with God, but also as a way of discerning God's call, God's direction, placing oneself before God and listening to God's direction. The very beginning of these exercises is labeled by St. Ignatius as the principle and foundation. And the reason that I'm focusing on this is the spiritual exercises, it may sound very wonderful, and it is, but it's 30 days of being absolutely silent, except for your conversation with your spiritual director. It is a journey. And there are parts of it that are very, very challenging. You want God coming at you every day for a month? God will get you. Decisions you never thought of will be made because God is there. Let me read to you an excerpt from the Principle and Foundation um, in a contemporary translation by a Father David Fleming. He was an American Jesuit who many consider um, a spiritual master, especially in the understanding of Ignatian spirituality. And see if you don't hear things that resonate in Laudato Si. So this is the principle and foundation. This is the very beginning of the spiritual exercises that Pope Francis made twice in his life. God who loves us, creates us, and wants to share life with us forever. Our love response takes shape in our praise and honor and service of the God of our life. All things in this world are also created because of God's love, and they become a context of gifts presented to us so that we can know God more easily and make a return of love more readily. As a result, we show reverence for all the gifts of creation and collaborate with God in using them so that by being good stewards, we develop as loving persons in our care of God's world and its development. But if we abuse any of these gifts of creation, or on the contrary, take them as the center of our lives, we break our relationship with God and hinder our growth as loving persons. In everyday life, then, we must hold ourselves in balance before all created gifts insofar as we have a choice and are not bound by some responsibility, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one, for everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this, I want and choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me? So he's specifically talking about possessions there. I mean, one of the things that Jesuits talk about in the spiritual exercises is not owning anything. And boy, I'll tell you, when a novice master says, you don't deserve that shampoo, that's what happened. <laughs> and I did have a novice master tell me, that shampoo is not yours. This came much later. 
But basically, Ignatius's first principle is that all creation is a gift coming from God and leading toward God. And all things in the world are presented to us so that we can know God more easily and make a return, a response. And it means that God absolutely is in this creation. The choices we make in our daily lives push us away from God or draw us closer to Him. So when you see that language in this encyclical about making choices, it comes in part from Pope Francis's life of many decades as a Jesuit. Number 87, when we see God reflected in all that exists, our hearts are moved to praise the Lord for all his creatures and to worship him in union with him. That speaks to me of very much Jesuit spirituality. So we've talked about how Francis influenced the spirituality of this document and shaped Pope Francis. It's pretty interesting that a Jesuit pope, with all the Jesuit saints that are out there, chooses a Franciscan saint as his name. Very interesting. So he's shaped by a lot of things. The last area that I'd like to share with you that I, I do strongly believe influenced Pope Francis was his experience as a cleric, as a bishop, as a cardinal in Latin America. And you'll see that there are influences in the language, especially in the way that he relates to and wants us to care for the poor. One of the persons we see, in fact, he's holding up a picture, is Blessed Oscar Romero. And in a homily that he gave on September 9, 1979, in a homily, he said this, It is inconceivable that someone is called Christian and does not make a preferential option for the poor as Christ did. The phrase, preferential option for the poor, appears in the document Laudato Si. Now, also because it was a Latin church, and, and I remember hearing about the Oscar Romero and the churchwomen, and all of the people in this picture except for Pope Francis were actually killed and are considered martyrs in the life of the church. In the 1970s, in the Central American country of El Salvador, there were rural peasants who were part of a group trying to organize, trying to gain the right to own land. And according to Oscar Romero, the church women, and the Jesuits that you see there from the University of Central America, it was about who had the right to own land and who had the right to own more land than they needed at the expense of those who were just trying to live. Now, the four church women were not in any way involved in the politics of it. They were simply there to take care of and care for those who were suffering in the horrors of what was going on. During that time, over 75,000 poor people were killed. 
many of them were disappeared. When I was living in Mexico um, in the 1980s, I worked at a place where we fed people pretty much breakfast and lunch every day. And we had many refugees from Central America. And listening to their stories just made me shake in my shoes for some of the things that they experienced. And so whatever one's politics are over what happened in Central America, it did influence the way that Pope Francis thinks about the poor and how sometimes poverty is related to injustice and how sometimes those in power can create very terrible conditions for those who do not have power. So that influenced him. The women believed that they were helping folks who had no other place to turn. And you'll hear that in the encyclical over and over again. And number 158 of the encyclical, in the present condition of global society where injustices abound and growing numbers of people are deprived of basic human rights and considered expendable, the principle of the common good immediately becomes logically and inevitably a summons to solidarity and a preferential option for the poorest of our brothers and sisters. Now the Jesuits, being Jesuits, were very much involved in some of the politics of what was going on. And part of what they did was try to expose wherever there was injustice. On a November night in 1989, I remember the next day very, very well. Uh, we got word, a phone call early in the morning, that the Jesuits at the University of Central America, with the ex exception of John Sabrino, had been murdered. And two of the housekeepers, the housekeeper and their daughter, had been murdered with them. What was so strange about their deaths is that they had been dragged out into the lawn and with the butts of rifles. Their skulls had been cracked open and their brains were spread out. And the reason that that was done, it was a warning for any intellectuals that were trying to stop what they considered to be the injustices. That had to have had a profoundly deep impact on Pope Francis at that time. It sent such a shock wave through the Jesuit order that it, uh, I remember two days later standing next to John Sabrino who had lost every single member of his community to this, and he could barely stand. And I have to believe that Pope Francis knew some of these guys, because Jesuit brothers are Jesuit brothers. You know, we used to see each other everywhere. So when you see some of that language about the poor, some of it, at the very least, comes from the experience of the church of Latin America 
and some of the challenges that they've been through. So, this is not just a nice document. One of the scary things about a spirituality is that it needs to affect us somehow. Something in our prayer, something in our worship, something in our activity changes. And so the very nature of this document calls us to prayer and reflection. He's saying something has to change. Whether you believe in global warming, whether you believe in climate change, to him that's almost not the point from a spiritual perspective. From a spiritual perspective, we need to change our lives. It has to start in prayer and reflection. And from then, we look to Francis of Assisi. The change comes about through conversion. Now, we have an experience in the church of conversion, you know, with the RCIA, with the catechumens. And that sense of conversion is not so much about sin, really. It's about a life without Christ moving towards life with Christ. But the model of it is helpful for us because we're not the ones who lead the catechumens into faith so much as they're the ones who remind us of our faith. We follow them. Don't we learn things from them and in the rites that we share on Sundays with them? But Francis, his conversion took a while. And what's interesting is he was surprised by things. And he got in trouble. His father was very mad at him when he gave away a bunch of stuff to a stranger. Dad was not happy. Francis said, sorry. But it took a while, and it was a lifelong endeavor. Same thing for us. When we let Laudato Si soak in, what happens? And are we really looking for a change? And then discernment that comes from St. Ignatius. What I find so fascinating about discernment, too many people use discernment as a way to pick between something that they shouldn't do and something that they should do. You know, I wonder if I shouldn't burn my neighbor's house down. I'm going to pray about that. That's not discernment. Discernment for St. Ignatius was always between two good things, two positive things. So the conversion is where you turn around and head in a different direction. But the discernment comes in, where do we go? I can do all these different things. I mean, Pope Francis suggests a whole lot of them, but which ones do we do? And finally, this document calls us for faith in action. If nothing changes after we read this document, and we take the scary journey of prayer, reflection, conversion, discernment. Something has to be different about us. We owe it to the world. We owe it to the generations that come after us. Do we really, he asks us, do we really want to give them a world in which they cannot live? He says... Many things have to change course 
but as we human beings above all who need to change. What is that going to look like? So the spirituality that Francis offers us, he is interested in how an ecological spirituality can motivate us to a more passionate concern for the protection of our world. This spirituality must be capable of inspiring us with an interior impulse which encourages, motivates, nourishes, and gives meaning to our individual and communal activity. And so, you know, when I started out by saying, ooh, it sounds like he's talking to me. He's caught me. He has. He has. He's caught each one of us. That's what a spirituality does. And somewhere along the line, God is going to hound us. Day and night, doesn't give up. That's very Ignatian spirituality too. And which of us is going to take those steps towards conversion and lead others? A lot of parishes are entering into a process of prayer where some in their midst are acting like the catechumens and leading us in a journey of turning around and returning to Christ. That could happen here. We could gather to reflect on pieces of this document. We can do it at home. We can do it online. But most of all, how are we going to respond to God's call through Francis to be people who are not so obsessed with things? You want a challenge? Yes. Yes. How about if this Christmas season, as much time as we spend shopping, including online, <laughs> we spend prayer, spend time in prayer, the same. How about if we don't give things or ask for things we don't need? That's a big point here. That's part of his spirituality. We have so much that we don't need or don't use. How about if this coming Lent Easter, rather than giving up chocolate, which really doesn't do anything for anybody unless you're a diabetic, <laughs> what about if we enter into prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, and the money that we save goes to people who don't have enough to eat? That really brings a change that we can see. How, how will it look when Christ is truly risen in the poor? They'll be fed. They'll have dignity. They'll be people again. That's up to us. Amen. And pray together the prayer for our earth, which Kelly will put up on the screen for us as we did the opening prayer. All-powerful oh, God, God, you are present in the whole universe and in the smallest of your creatures. You embrace with your tenderness all that exists. Pour out upon us the power of your love, that we may protect life and beauty. Fill us with peace, that we may live as brothers and sisters, harming no one. O God of the poor, help us to rescue the abandoned and forgotten of this earth. 
so precious in your eyes. Bring healing to our lives, that we may protect the world and not prey on it, that we may sow beauty, not pollution and destruction. Touch the hearts of those who look only for gain at the expense of the poor and the earth. Teach us to discover the worst of each thing, to be filled with awe and contemplation, to recognize that we are profoundly united with every creature as we journey towards your infinite light. We thank you for being with us each day. Encourage us, we pray, in our struggle for justice, love, and peace. Amen. Thank you very much, all of you. Thank you.